Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Lee Cantor here with Stone Payton, another episode of ATDC Radio. And Stone, this is the the headliners. Hey, this is it, man. This is the home stretch. We've had a wonderful day, caught up with some old friends, made some new ones. I get inspired every time I come down here. I feel 10 years younger. Um, this is just, it beats the heck out of working, doesn't it, doing this? Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoy it. All right, so we got two more guests we're going to visit with before we pack up, head to the house, and get a cocktail. First up on this episode of ATDC Radio, please join me in welcoming to the program CEO Graham Poobah, the man in charge at Toucan AI, Mr. Deva Rajan. How'd we do? How'd I do on that? Did good. <laughs> all right, man. Welcome to the show. What is this thing all about? What are you out there trying to do for folks? Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, so we're trying to build the only AI chat platform for online marketplaces. Uh, both my co-founder and I, we were really interested in this space of conversation. We were seeing how it was taking over with messaging apps, with voice apps. You see stuff like Amazon Alexa, Google Home popping up in everybody's houses. And we were trying to figure out how can we give companies representation on these platforms. So we started looking into what's out there. And what we found was that pretty much across the board, platforms that are being built by Microsoft, by Google, by Amazon, they all follow pretty much the same paradigm. And what that involves is someone sitting there and writing out all the responses ahead of time of what any of these like chatbots will say. So you're basically sitting there like pre-scripting the entire conversation ahead of time. And that seemed like an incredibly tedious way to do it. Obviously, if you tried out with any chatbots online, you've probably seen they don't really give the best responses. Uh, so we wanted to see if we could make a better way of handling that kind of stuff. So how are you handling it? Yeah, sure. So we're using some of the, the cutting edge of research in natural language processing to take information, unstructured information. So this is just like, if you think about an online marketplace, something like Airbnb or something like that, where you have just tons of different products and listings, all with their right. own descriptions. Uh, we take all of that information and we can answer questions about it arbitrarily. So you can say, okay, what are the differences between these two properties? You know, I want a place with a pool and we can, you know. So like it could be like if, if Airbnb is the example, it's like I'm going to uh, Savannah. Mm -hmm. And then now they'll go, we have 486 listings in Savannah. Okay, I'm looking for two bedroom, two bath, you know, a view of the river. Yeah. Yeah, then we can read all those descriptions in the blink of a second and be able to respond to you and tell you which ones are fitting those descriptions. We can even take it so that, let's say you say, okay, I want a two-bedroom and two-bathroom, and I want to view the river. Let's say we find 10 properties that fit those descriptions. Right. We can even read those the descriptions of all of those, find uh, one thing that five of them have in common and one thing that another five have in common, and then we can generate a question on the fly to ask you, to figure out which of those groups of five would be so you're being proactive of asking me questions back because yep. that's where i think a flaw in there in the ones that you described they never ask me a question back they only have answers exactly exactly because they're not you know they're not actually understanding what you're saying they're basically just sitting there and trying to bin you into an existing response that somebody's tried to predict ahead of time and we think that you know using predictive stuff like that where you're trying to you know guess what the user is going to say ahead of time it works well for really basic stuff like FAQs, stuff where people are asking the same thing over and over. Right. But when a customer has an individual need, when they have something that they specifically want amongst thousands of options, 
There's no way you can predict that. You just have to be able to try to understand what they're saying in the moment on the fly and respond. Now, how good is it in terms of kind of the synonyms of words, like where I, I might call something one thing and then somebody else, maybe from a different region of the country, calls it something else? Like how smart is it in kind of discerning that? Yeah, it's pretty good, actually. So we, we use things called uh, like word nets and concept nets that connect these different topics, no matter whether it's you know the same word or a form of a word. It should be able to understand the, the actual meaning of that word and be able to map it to actually like a series of numbers, which tends to show up similarly across words that mean the same thing. So uh, like a pretty common example that people use is that the the number or the vector representation of a word like uh, male compared to a word like female is the same as the difference between a word like king and a word like queen. So even though those words are, you know, not synonyms or anything like that, the fact that, you know, the way that they're used and the context in which they're used actually does create a numerical representation that actually has meaning. And that's in the neighborhood of what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So now um, how did this idea come about? Yeah, so we so we were both at Duke and we were studying, you know, natural language processing. We were doing a lot of independent research into it. So you're not from Atlanta at all? Not from Atlanta. We actually just moved here in December. So you were at Duke. Don't they have stuff like this there? <laughs> so they uh they have a good startup scene there. Um it's it's definitely a lot smaller than it is in Atlanta. I think what really? was one of the reasons we wanted to move here was because in that that whole region I would think there's tons of so I, I think that that region, they have a good tech scene. It's Right now, it's a lot of bigger companies that dominate the space. So mm-hmm. you have you know companies like Lenovo and IBM right. and SaaS all have really big, and Red Hat, they all have really big uh, you know groups there. But the startup scene is definitely a bit younger than it is in Atlanta. So there's no place like ATDC, for instance, that's been around for you know, 25, 30 right. years. Right, yeah, this is like the OG of incubators. Seriously. <laughs> It's pretty crazy. Actually, the other day, uh, me and my co-founder went to New York and we, we were talking to a pretty big VC firm there. And they were like, yeah, we've been sitting through, you know, combing through ATDC companies trying to figure out ones to invest in. I was like, wow, that's pretty crazy to see <laughs> the national reach that they have. Right. And then uh, so were you looking at lots of different places and you landed on ATDC? Like how did it get on your radar? Yeah. So we I guess to give context, um, after we finished at Duke, we did an accelerator called Play Labs up at MIT. And following that, we raised a lot of smart people there for sure, (laughs) for sure. Um, Following that, we raised our first round of funding and we were trying to figure out at that point, where do we go? So we had a Mm -hmm. couple of different options. Uh, In Boston, for sure, there's a lot of choices. Boston, there's a ton of choices. There's tons of startups in Boston. You know, it's a really big startup scene there. But the flip side of that is the more tech there is, the more startups there are, the more expensive it is. (laughs) Right. And, you know, for the same price. We could get probably double the space in a, an apartment in Atlanta than you could in Boston. Right. Oh, just like in, in terms of quality of life for you as an individual. For sure. For sure. Especially, you know, when you're, we didn't raise too much money. So when mm-hmm. you're, you know, a little bit trying to go lean with the money, it can help a lot to be in a cheaper city. So then, um, so then you decide to come here. Like, how'd you vet it? Like you came, took a tour, I guess, and they showed you around. Yeah. So one of our mentors actually introduced us to people at, I guess, all of the big, uh, tech hubs in Atlanta. So one being ATDC, the Atlanta Tech Village, tech Village right. Techstars Atlanta. We also checked out a couple of the co-working spaces. Like there's Strongbox West over in West right. Midtown. That's Switchers. one of the original ones here in Atlanta. Yeah. They and- were doing it before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> but they still look cool over there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, 
So it was pretty cool. We got to see a good variety of stuff around everywhere. Uh, I think this one really resonated with us because of the the tech focus. You know, I think that it was clear that they had a strong uh, relationship with Georgia Tech. They had a right. lot of companies that were working on cutting edge tech stuff. Um, and we just liked the people. You know, we came here. We got to meet a couple of the EIRs. We got to come to one of the uh, the entrepreneurs month monthly sessions. And now, do you need more talent? So having this uh, Georgia Tech talent pipeline is important for your growth. It definitely is. It definitely is. So we actually just made our first hire a couple of weeks ago. They're not from Georgia Tech, but we are planning on hiring a few more Georgia Tech people. Like at least interns, right? Exactly. So actually next week there's an internship fair that we're going to be going to where we're hoping to get some awesome Georgia Tech candidates. So now um, how do you see kind of this this voice-oriented, like with search, they're talking about how that's going to become more prevalent. You think you're, you're bullish on voice? And how people are going to interact with their devices, you know, verbally. Yeah. So I think that uh, both voice and chat are spaces that have been exploding in growth recently. I think last year was the first time ever that messaging apps outpaced social media apps in terms of usership. And I think something like 20% of American households have voice smart speakers in their home. So I think like both of these are big platforms that are growing a lot on the consumer end. And businesses are just trying to figure out how they can get in there because... You know, pretty much every time a new medium comes up, whether it's radio, TV, whatever, the websites, whatever it is, people want to go where the consumers are. So that's where the money is. Now, uh, how, do, how do you see those devices in your home evolving other than asking it the weather? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that's a, that's a big conception right now is the, the fact that people really only use it to, you know, play Spotify or ask for weather right now. Um, I think there's so much more that you can do with that. Like what are some things that we're not thinking about that maybe you are in terms of using the products? Yeah, I think like just just for starters, being able to um, get a product that you need or to make a purchasing decision that uh, you, you know, may not want to like pull out your phone. You may not want to like go to your computer, whatever it is. If you can just say a couple of, you know, have a couple of back and forths with your Alexa or whatever it is, and they can figure out the exact, say, vacation home you need for your Memorial Day weekend break or. You think that people will trust that just without seeing it, just by having a conversation. Like I'm a paranoid, of, I, I use Amazon all the time, but I'm paranoid of ordering something with Alexa because I'm afraid it's not going to know the exact right one that I'm thinking of. Sure. Yeah. I think that it's. It's something that takes sort of like a multi-platform approach is probably the best option. So I think that the thing that Alexa and Google Home provide that is um, that makes them the best in that capacity is the ease of starting a conversation. You know, you can just be like, oh, hey, Alexa. Right. I want to go to Charleston over Memorial Day weekend or over July 4th or whatever it is, right? And you can start that conversation there. But once you have maybe a couple of back and forths and they've picked something for you, then you want them to probably send you something to your phone, like a text or you know a message in an app or something like that. And then you can check it out further. But right. if you can get that conversation started over something like a voice interface, it's, it makes it a lot easier to go over the hurdle of you know being able to start. But how do you find like people's tolerance and patience with these devices in this regard? Because, I mean, if I ask Alexa something a couple times, I'm out. You know, like if it's not even... You know, I'm done. But like with if I'm searching on the Internet for something, you know, I'll just keep rewording. I'll try it more times. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. I think that, you know, especially given the fact that right now these smart speakers are in their early days, they're they're, they're nascent technologies. Right. So people are 
are less tolerant with uh, mistakes they make. And I think that's something that has a lot to be improved on. So hopefully we can that's, make it to that. <laughs> that's, that's what you're at. Uh, that's job security for you guys, right? Exactly. <laughs> so now, um, so where are you at right now? Do you have a product? Do you have it's out in the wild? Like, where are you guys at? Sure. So we're pretty early stage right now. Uh, we're looking to do our first pilots towards the end of April, early May. Uh, we have a few companies lined up for that. Uh, what's a profile of a good company to do a pilot? Yeah. So right now we're working with primarily uh, location-based marketplaces. So you're thinking about stuff like real estate marketplaces, travel marketplaces. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first ones that we're doing is with a company that does uh, apartment rentals for off-campus housing for students. Right. So for them, it's it's the same thing. You know, there's students get off campus or they realize they can't live in their dorm anymore. They have, I don't know, hundreds of different options right. to choose. They don't know which ones are better for what they need. So we're here to help. So then uh, how did you choose that? Yeah, actually, it was because the founder of that company was really interested in chat. And they uh, so, so he was using his website normally with his students. Um, and at one point, he tried implementing a live support chat so that would basically be him sitting there answering uh students questions on the f- you know, like live on the fly <laughs> he was sitting there <laughs> like, it would, like buzz his phone hey yeah yeah it's- exactly <laughs> exactly and and what he found was that his his conversions went through the roof uh, so really? he ended up he ended up selling way more than he was previously the issue was he That's has three not kids scalable, right? <laughs> he, can't, he can't scale it at all right there's a seinfeld episode that you ever you heard of Seinfeld, right? Yeah, I've heard so, of Seinfeld. So there was a Seinfeld episode where um, Kramer uh, gets uh, his numbers near the movie phone number. Yeah. So yeah. he was live <laughs> answering like, and you you want to go to this movie? And he was looking it up in the paper, and he was trying to guess the movies that they wanted. So it's kind of <laughs> yeah, similar. I mean, that's basically the same <laughs> thing, <he> was, honestly. <laughs> right. It's pretty much the same thing. So um, he decided you you knew this person, and then you're kind of. He's going to pilot your thing? Yeah, he's going to pilot it. So we're looking to launch with him, like I mentioned, about a little over a month's time. Now, are you looking for more or you have enough to kind of at least learn a little from these uh, first ones? Yeah, so we do have a couple of first ones to start off with. I mean, we're definitely interested in trying out a couple more. I think that Mm -hmm. uh, especially in this space, there's like a lot of different sort of sub niches. You know, there's apartment rentals, there's like beach homes, mountain homes, whatever it is, like all these different things, you know, even like. Uh, event spaces for business stuff, you right. know, like like an ATDC party or whatever it is. Right. All these different spaces have their own sort of um, special features, and we're definitely interested in trying out more. And then, so for you, you don't really discern between the chat bots and the voice because it's similar technology, right? Yeah, for us, it's exactly the same technology. Basically, no matter what, we convert everything to text anyways, and then we just handle it as text and then convert it back to voice if necessary. So we're basically making it so that if a company wants to onboard with us, they just log onto a website, they copy and paste the URL for their product catalog into our platform. We go through, scrape everything, and within you know, 20, 30 minutes, we have the AI up and running. You can do one-click integrations for whether you want Facebook Messenger, a website chat, Alexa, whatever it is. It should be as easy as possible to make And that's all it takes. Yep. It's literally minutes. Yep. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. So now, um, so you're here at ATDC, everything's going well, you're acclimating to Georgia. Yeah. Any problems acclimating? No, not so far. It's been it's been awesome, honestly. <laughs> I think uh, especially compared to, you know, the Raleigh Durham area, this is 
a much bigger city and you know there's way more options for food more mm -hmm. options for nightlife stuff to do so, so do you live so around fun. here midtown yep in midtown i walk to work every day <laughs> oh good stuff so you're getting the whole atlanta experience yep that's right <laughs> and then so right now what do you need more of hmm. i guess honestly it would, it would be interesting to do a few more use cases with different pilot partners i think mm -hmm. that right now we have a couple of core ones but if we can get a couple more on there just to get the right kind of metrics to see where we're saving people time, where we're making people more money. So tell your ATD useful. mentors to get on the ball and find you some more partners. <laughs> exactly. That's part of their job. Exactly. <laughs> so if somebody went to learn more and uh, maybe get on your radar for a pilot, what's the best way to get a hold of you guys? Yeah, they can either email me at Arjun, A-R-J-U-N, at toucanai.com, or they can just go to our website and we have some contact info there. And it's toucanai.com. That's right. Good stuff. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Yeah, and stay connected with us. We want to follow how this thing goes. I, this is so. I love hearing these hearing these stories. So don't be a stranger and let us know as things continue to evolve. Okay. For sure. All right, man. Stay with us. We're going to visit with one more guest. Awesome. All right, Lee. You ready for the headliner? Yep. Cleanup hitter. We're but, ending with the big guns. After this, if we beat traffic, we could get to the house and have a cocktail. Everybody before wins. Andy Griffith comes on. All right, here we go. Uh, next up and last up on ATDC Radio today. We have with us the CEO of Verity, Mr. Kel Canty. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Glad to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you. Did you learn anything in that last segment? I did. It was uh, great to hear about what uh, Toucan.ai is doing, and uh, sounds like a really uh, promising effort to uh, help out a lot of companies make more money and, and have another growing tech company in the ecosystem here. Well, tell us about Verity. How are you serving folks? So we specialize in helping with the accounting and audit of cryptocurrencies. Uh, so a lot of people may be familiar, particularly in the year before last, with the extreme growth in the adoption and, and price appreciation of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, and right. others that came to be. Um, one of the issues that comes with those cryptocurrencies, since they're such a new innovation outside the traditional financial system, is that there aren't a lot of standards, tools, or uh, recognition of how you can actually account, audit, verify, and provide assurance for these cryptocurrencies. So um, my co-founder and I actually have been in the space since about 2012. This is our second startup in the blockchain Bitcoin crypto space. And we were fortunate enough to uh, run into a situation where we helped an accounting firm uh, actually audit and verify the crypto assets of a company for an independent financial audit. And then we've evolved that since to uh, specialize in the accounting and the audit, which helps out growing businesses that are looking to adopt crypto, as well as existing companies that are using crypto in some form uh, for their actual uh, rails of payments. So now um, we were last year at uh, FinTech South, and mm -hmm. we got a chance to interview a lot of the FinTech companies there. And to a person, everybody was bullish on blockchain. Mm-hmm. None of them would say, yeah, I'm good with X cryptocurrency. Right, right. They were skeptical or a kind of wait and see uh, for any cryptocurrency specifically. Yeah. But the concept of blockchain, they everybody believed that to be real. Right. So blockchain is the underlying technology that came about with the advent of Bitcoin, which happened about 10 years ago. And I, I think there's a couple of reasons behind what you heard in terms of the uh, um, perhaps, um, you know, hesitancy or caution around the cryptocurrency aspect of, of blockchain. 
And those are uh, one that in the United States, and you've got to think this is a global phenomenon, right? So, um, uh, and I'll talk about that again in a second, um, that there's, um, people aren't real sure in terms of the regulators and the legislators of how to classify it. You know, is it a piece of property, um, which is the IRS's mechanisms of taxing it? Or is it a commodity, which the CFTC is saying, you know, certain cases it's a commodity. Is it a currency where you have the Department of Treasury saying certain cryptocurrencies are currencies? Or is it a security, which the SEC jumps in and says, oh, well, we think in certain cases it's a security. So for the United States, there's a little um, hesitancy due to the fact that the regulators and the legislators don't really know what bucket to put it in. And that's because it's newer and it has aspects of all of them. And one of the one of the things is how it's used can depend it can uh, kind of tell you what it's being used for or how to classify it. Right. Um, the other aspect of it is been the volatility. So if you look at the volatility, uh, I bought my bit, first Bitcoin when it was around fifty dollars back in twenty thirteen, and then it spikes up to two thousand, then goes down to around thirty five hundred, and now it's around four thousand. I think um, people think that that's incredibly volatile for a currency. Which I would say that people in Venezuela and other places might argue have, with that. Might argue with that, right? <laughs> right? So they're they're actually flocking to it because it's a stable, um, you know, not a uh, stable currency that's not actually under the auspices of a potentially unstable government, right? Um, so the things around that that are occurring is there's an advent of something called stable coins. And these are cryptocurrencies that are on blockchains that are actually backed one-to-one with either the U.S. dollar or some other uh, traditional asset like gold or silver or some other uh, particular real-world asset. And they are starting to unlock the potential as a payment mechanism for the cryptocurrency. So you've seen, um, I don't know if you've seen the news, but JP Morgan announced a stable coin about three weeks ago. And they're moving forward to use that first privately within their bank on a global basis to uh, enable funds and payments. And Facebook is actually looking at launching their own stable coin within their messaging systems, uh, which you know some people believe can bring as much as $19 billion in revenue. So with the advent of stablecoins being more regulatorily clear and being uh, much less volatile, being backed one-to-one with the U.S. dollar, I think uh, within the next year you'll see a lot more activity and traction in terms of generalized use, particularly for payments, particularly internationally, for cryptocurrencies. Now, are you seeing like a Bitcoin used to just buy stuff or are people using a Bitcoin – more is it more likely they'll use it as an investment see that's that's kind of one of the uh issues that i think stable coins will actually augment the use of crypto as a medium of exchange but uh, that's what you prefer or is that what you think that what i think that's what i believe the best use case is for crypto uh as far as a store of value which you're seeing you've seen recently uh, i think some of the uh core uh what's known as a protocol token the bitcoin the ethereum that builds a blockchain, those may continue to appreciate. I think the tokens that are stable coins will be more and more used as medium of exchange because they stabilize the volatility. Cause, right, because you know what it's worth. Right. And the thing with Bitcoin, isn't it that there's a finite amount of them? Yes. So if you create scarcity, then the value could go up. Exactly. So there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And uh, you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. There's all fractions out to eight decimal places. 
Um, but that scarcity um, will perhaps create that uh, appreciation effect as a store of value. And some people make it akin to digital gold. Um, right. Or uh, to me, my paranoia in this is that I make it akin to a baseball card. You know, like there were baseball cards and mm -hmm. there was a handful of Mickey Mantle ones that right. people knew existed and then they became worth a lot of money. Sure. But I always thought, well, can't the baseball card company just make a few more? Well, actually, due to the way that the digital asset and the, the cryptography, the encryption, decryption algorithms and the way that Bitcoins are created and verified with public-private key cryptography, there is no possibility currently with and for a while, probably a thousand years, that you can ever duplicate that. You see digital and cryptographic collectibles actually becoming a thing. Uh, so CryptoKitties and others, some have sold for several hundred thousand dollars. So that would be the equivalent of the baseball cards. The Bitcoin, um, if you look at a local Atlanta company here who's the world's largest cryptocurrency payment processor, BitPay, they've done over a billion dollars in payment transactions over the past two years, each year. It's gr the growth of international business-to-business -business payments in Bitcoin alone has been over 250% just through uh, BitPay, the local company here. So now, is has Bitcoin stabilized to the point where people are using it more as a currency? They do. In fact, there's entire ecosystems wherein people using a certain cryptocurrency can vertically integrate across their supply chain. I do think that that use case will explode with the advent of stable coins. So I think it's being proved that it has been useful and will continue to be useful. Uh, but I think that the use case will really go through the roof with the advent of stable coin, particularly with people like JP Morgan and Facebook jumping on that wagon. So now who uses Verity? So we work uh, in a couple of different ways. We work with audit partners where we act as a specialist, where we verify the ownership and the actual amount and transactions of the crypto. So uh, major accounting firms in the top 50, we actually partner with one here in Atlanta that's a, a top 50 accounting firm named Aprio. We have contracts with others in the top 50 to help them actually verify things like the token supply of stable coins, as well as uh, if they're auditing a client and need to verify their assets because there is no bank to go for and say, what's the balance and do they own this particular aspect? Um, and then the other way that we help is with the accounting integration. So a firm, uh, we actually have a client here in town as well, Storage, who is a very well-known crypto enterprise where they provide decentralized file storage and have minted their own token to enable that use. And they use our software to help manage all of their multiple wallets and their exchange integrations and actually are able to help account for their token as well as other tokens and other cryptos so that they don't need all these Excel spreadsheets across you know, four different bookkeepers doing all sorts of reconciliation because it is extremely difficult with the, um, the rise of crypto and all the different forks and all the different cryptocurrencies and their valuation changing all the time to do that. And our software helps solve that problem. Now, um, is there always going to be that challenge of I have to go through this cumbersome process to buy this and have this kind of password protected thing that only I have or somebody can steal it and then they have it and then, or if I forget it, then it's worthless? Well, I think there you're, you're talking about the challenge in, in maintaining a private key. So the original advent of Bitcoin was around having and being your own bank. And being able to have you know your self sovereignty in that, um, one of the big spikes actually in the, the the adoption of Bitcoin was back when 
around the Cyprus uh, and Greece uh, incident back in 2013, where the government were running a shortage and they went into the bank accounts of every person right. in the nation. And I think they took 10 or 15% out of the bank account and said, we're the government. We can do this. We can do this. We're taking 10 to 15% right. out of all of your accounts, right? right? And everybody wondered about the sovereignty of their money, right? right. So, Because in a way, if you think about this, I'm going to get a little philosophical on you for a second, that if you think about the freedoms that you're guaranteed under, you know, at least in America and other countries as well, of freedom of expression, freedom of religion, and other things that are, I think, intrinsic to human nature, if you don't have freedom of owning your financial means and and your your assets and it's under the control of other third parties that may potentially make a mistake, make a policy change, do everything like that, then you may at some point become, you know, you may forfeit your other freedoms because you're not going to express your true opinion if the government of Venezuela or if the bank makes a mistake and they're controlling those funds and you go to an ATM and it says, sorry, we can't give that to you. So that's self-sovereignty. Now, not everyone has the technical wherewithal or the desire to be their own bank. And there are solutions coming out now. Last year, the first registered custodian came about, and there's others that are coming. So things like BitGo and Coinbase and others will actually help you hold and control and make sure that your private keys are safe that control your cryptocurrency. So as this evolves... That will be an option, but I think there will always be the option for people who want to have a certain amount of their crypto under their own control in their own wallet, just like you have cash in your wallet right now and you're secure in your ability to have that in case you know the ATM goes down, the Visa card goes down or something like that, that you can always have control of that crypto. Um, it'll be enabled both ways. Now, well, what about that situation where the person... I guess invented the crypto and then he died and then no one could access the their accounts. So originally Bitcoin was published anonymously under uh, a, a name, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, and uh, no one really knows who that is or if it's a group. But at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. I think probably it was an individual who didn't want to, you know, go testify in front of Congress or be investigated <laughs> by the IRS or. He had an idea that combined the best of computer science, um, some game theory in terms of economics and incentives, and the idea of being self-sovereign and having an internet-ready global currency, right? And he went ahead and published that into the domain and started out with open source. Now, that was 10 years ago, and ever since then, it doesn't matter who wrote that it came up with that. You know, it has been heavily invested in. Uh, all the source code has been vetted. It's all in the open public domain. And I actually used to say, I don't care who the, what the name of the guy who invented pants were. You know, I'm still wearing them, right? right. Whether still it's works. Levi's or Wrangler, right. it still works, right? And everyone knows what it is. So to me, that's a little bit um, – it's interesting as kind of a side story as to who that was and why they did it. But the end result, I think, is something well, that's I'm not changing the world. I'm not talking about the Bitcoin guy. There was some – recently somebody had – Oh, Quadria CX. Yes. So there was a Canadian exchange – where the founder actually held the private keys to the funds within the exchange. Right, and then he died. He might have died. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> might have so, died. So one of the things... Because you're only as good as as the person running that exchange, right? Well, in an unregulated way. And this is why a lot of people like myself have been pushing for clear regulation. Um, we think... Uh, so in, in the United States at the least... 
there's an organization called the ICPA and others that uh, handle standards of, of terms of integrity monitoring and auditing, not financial auditing, but systems, procedures, organizations, and controls, right? And the good exchanges like Gemini and others, they actually go through a process where they're audited and ensure that no single individual, you have separation of concerns, separations of duties, um, and it, in terms of uh, making sure that uh, best practices are, are being done in a way that that situation cannot occur. That exchange up in, in Canada was unregulated and was not falling under any uh, audit procedures or whatsoever. So I think a lot of people look at all the exchanges and think they're all the same. I give them some money, uh, fiat money, and I get crypto back. But uh, there's actually a huge difference in terms of the way they operate and the way they uh, actually safeguard their keys and make sure that they'll always be available and they're doing the right things. And then that's it's kind of a buyer beware situation right now, right? I would say you need to be an intelligent buyer and you need to look and see if they have, uh, for instance, uh, Gemini and Coinbase are, uh, Gemini has been SOC audited and they actually are a trust uh, banking institution and are regulated um, you know, under the SEC as well as various uh, New York and federal laws. And so you can look at those kind of things and let's say the the rate for conversion between fiat and crypto is not quite as good as you know, some random exchange out in, you know, Hong Kong or something. Maybe there's a reason for that difference in rate. Maybe they're right. putting the money toward controls, safety, and assurance. And you should be a little bit more, uh, you should think fully through that before you just go with the best rate for some particularly non-U.S. jurisdiction exchange. So now um, what I'm hearing, it sounds like that the concept of blockchain is kind of... Um, there's some chaos involved in terms of somebody coming up with this idea of this exchange that's fully transparent, but it's kind of a belief in a more of a libertarian kind of way of dealing with currency and money. I, I would say for the cryptocurrency aspect, the blockchain aspect being used with private consortiums is much more clear. For example, Food Trust is uh, something that IBM's come up with, which is a blockchain supply chain mechanism that Walmart has actually uh, mandated that all of their leafy green suppliers be on by September of this year, or they will not be a vendor to Walmart. And that's going to, you know, avoid situations where you have, you know, potentially tainted produce right, and you can track it. And now, you know, you can point a finger right. and say, this is where it's at. And this is who was the, yeah. the person where it started. But so the currency part of it, needs to have more structure and regulation in order for it to be effective for the average person. Yes. Like the early adopters were okay with this kind of level of this sounds good. I'm, you know, you bought this at 50 where some people thought you were crazy for putting any money in there. Right. Right. And then when it went to $20,000, they thought you were a genius. And if it would look good at 20,000, it must look great at 4,000, right? So probably there's some people <laughs> that are doubling down there. Uh, I have no official <laughs> investment advice or anything right. of that nature. But uh, the, the core argument that you're making there that uh, currently we don't have a regulatory structure around these assets and it's been dragging on for a little while, um, I think it's something that's important for the United States to address. Uh, if you look around the world, you'll see that uh, other governments, so Singapore's Monetary Authority sing uh, uh, of Singapore's authority has already put out clear guidelines. 
uh, Switzerland, where Crypto Valley is the head of all crypto globally, um, has put out uh, great um, legislation around that. Israel, France, Malta, there are dozens of jurisdictions that have come to grips with this and are putting out at least frameworks, whereas we've done nothing. So is it because it is so complex, it's so politically charged, there's so many kind of uh, fingers in the pot that want to have a say in the matter? Um, I'm not a, a specialist in, mm-hmm. in governmental activities, but I think it's due to two core, three core things. One, it's technologically uh, advanced and confusing. Two, uh, the nature of the digital asset can depend on how it's actually used. It's not something like, oh, that's a car, I know what it is. It is a collection of, it's a digital asset that if I use it to pay you, then it's a medium of exchange, maybe it's a currency. Or if I invest in it and I buy it and I hold it, then I sell it later on for a profit, then maybe I should treat it like an equity. You know, that's an issue. Um, So the idea of it being flexible depending on its use is a little bit new to legislators and regulators. And then who is the ultimate arbiter? Is it the Department of Treasury? Is it the CFTC? Is it the SEC? Is it the OCC? Is it the IRS? It would be nice to have a framework that figured that out. But other countries have. They, they have. They've picked a side and said, okay, it's this. Yes. Or they say, it's this new thing, and now I need a new regulator to, that's in charge of this new thing. Yes. Now, for, for Verity, uh, what does the future hold for you guys? So you're bullish on all this. Well, I'm particularly bullish on the use of stable coins and a growing payment ecosystem around crypto and stable coins. The uh, issue with that is when companies get into that, how do they deal with it? You know, how does it show up in their uh, QuickBooks or their Zero or for larger companies, NetSuite and Intact? So what we're doing right now is uh, building that out and we are integrating into the Zero accounting system, the QuickBooks accounting system so that people don't have to worry about all this, um, you know, difficulty and complexity of the crypto. They'll just see it in their accounting system and they can account for it in their own appropriate currency dollars and not have to worry about it. But at the end of the day, they'll know that they're using a currency or a medium of exchange in the crypto that instead of, you know, with chargebacks and credit card fees and everything of that nature might be, you know, four to 6%, depending on what kind of business activities you're doing. Instead, you're you know paying pennies for a transaction, particularly internationally. So now is most of your work done internationally because the U.S. doesn't have their act together? We have a lot of U.S. clients right now, particularly uh, within the accounting firms that are trying to figure out what their clients are doing with their crypto, as well as you know some U.S. ones that are going ahead and helping kind of pioneer um, in the United States. And we are looking to go overseas as we move forward. And that's one of the great things that these accounting system integrations will help. We'll be in the app marketplace and uh, if you look at globally how QuickBooks and Zero do that, then we'll be easily accessible um, for that reach of that marketplace outside of the United States as well as inside the United States. Now, is it better for the market to kind of determine what this is, or, or is it better to wait until the government decides what it is and then just react to it? Uh, I would say that you're already seeing that the market is occurring. I spoke uh, last year in front of a, a group of EO businessmen and women that uh, we asked, generally we ask, you know, who's, who has a wallet, you know, who's used Bitcoin? And out of the group of, you know, EO entrepreneurs, which are a pretty good group, right? right. Uh, we had about 20% raise their hands. And I was like, that's a little high. And we, we, we dug into that a little bit and asked the two or three of them what they used it for. 
And they all said, it's extremely uh, useful for me to be able to use that for international payments. Mm-hmm. I've got some supplier in Europe. I've got a supplier in Asia where someone's paying me from, you know, uh, outside the United States. And it's, it, I don't have to go to the bank. I don't have to pay for a wire. I don't have to wait three days. And I don't have to pay 50 bucks. So the people that are doing business internationally, this makes sense. Makes a great deal of sense. Like right now. Yeah. And they're doing it right now. So now, uh, why'd you choose to uh, be at the ATDC? Well, I'm actually a Georgia Tech computer science alum from back in the day. And I've always been uh, around Georgia Tech, and I, I love what um, what Georgia Tech does as a university and a program. And the fact that they've teamed with the state of Georgia for ATDC, and, uh, you know, it's, it's here and it's got such a great legacy. Also, we're members of the Engage here as well. And I, I live in Atlanta and have lived in Atlanta since I came here to go to school at Georgia Tech. So it just made perfect sense. And com- complete with all the resources that you have here in terms of partnering with some of the, um, the business sponsors that come about and the investment advice, the business advice, the sponsors that are here, uh, and the whole ecosystem of fellow entrepreneurs where you can discuss what's going on and get advice and sounding boards is, uh, I think it's unparalleled within the, at least the Southeast as far as I can tell. Now, how is blockchain and crypto getting handled in the university setting? Are they teaching this? Or are they kind of exploring it to your liking? So you've actually kind of pinpointed one of my pet peeves is that Georgia Tech is currently not moving forward. A little bit within the Scheller School of Business, uh, there is some uh, movement forward because blockchain enables some transformation of business processes that's Mm -hmm. extremely interesting and disintermediation. But the computer science department, I think, has not moved forward. There are are several top universities that are uh, really iterating and leading the charge, particularly within the United States on this. And, you know, you've got MIT, you've got Cornell doing smart contract stuff, you've got Berkeley, you've got uh, Stanford, and uh, as far as I'm concerned we should be up there with them but we're not necessarily making uh it attract in blockchain within the computer science school a priority right now we're trying to work forward to push that i know georgia state is doing some things in blockchain they are primarily again around the the business school but uh, a little bit with the computer science i'd like to see uh you know if there's a collaboration there that can be done within the business schools and Obviously, you know, Emory plays a part as well with uh, some of the Tiger programs that are mm-hmm. shared between Georgia Tech and, and Emory. But uh, um, like I said, uh, when when people talk about the top five universities in the United States that are doing blockchain, um, they generally talk about it in terms of the computer science research, the game theory, the cryptography, the things of that nature. And uh, we're not there yet, and I'd love to see us get there. It's a missed opportunity. Uh, potentially. Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes in the future. All right, if somebody wants to learn more about Verity, how do they find you? You can come to www.verity.com and uh, learn more about uh, what we're doing and our products. Uh, we actually have a product suite called Legible, and that's where we enable people to do the audit, uh, the compliance, and the accounting of crypto. Good stuff. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, this is Lee Cantor for Stonepaid, and we will see you all next time on ATDC Radio. Radio.